Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Before we, um, before we get into the teaching, yes, there's a whiteboard. Um, if you're new or haven't been here a lot, I like to use a whiteboard. It's just a way of bringing my brain to paper, but this is obviously not paper. It's a board that you can all see, so you're welcome. But people get really excited about it. Um, if you're, I'm type A, so I like to be able to put my, my thoughts down on stuff that makes sense. But anyways, um, before we get into it today for the teaching, normally we have someone come up here and tell their story. And it's something we've been doing at Contrast that we just really love and get to believe in. And unfortunately, that person was not feeling well this weekend, and so it was good for them to not be here. Um, but I wanted to just share a little personal story, because I thought, hey, we usually have story time. I'll just, I get to fill it. I'm up here. So um, one of the cool things that um, we want to start doing is we actually have almost everybody that joined our launch team in the original about a year ago uh, has, um, has told their story. Almost everyone, like probably 90%. There's a few more people who are on the docket. And we're really excited about that. And someone asked me, well, what happens whenever we run out of stories? <laughs> you know, uh, it's only, it's only going to be a certain amount of time. And, uh, and I, I had said and had told them from the, like, one of the thoughts from the beginning was, we want to be a church that shares stories. And it doesn't need to be like your whole testimony. It can just be like really cool ways that you've seen God work or ways that he's taught you things. And so I just want to share one little thing that came to, came to mind while I was worshiping. Uh, last week, our message was talking about asking God for things and receiving things from him as if he is this loving father who cares about what you asked for. And uh, staff meeting on Tuesday, Sarah, Nick, and I were meeting, and I made us get there at Cohatch at 7 a.m. and spent 20 to 30 minutes in silence and solitude before we actually started our staff meeting uh, in prayer. And one of the things that I just, I felt like, well, I got to practice my own, my own teaching, right? And so I asked God, I said, God, we need like more diversity. We need older people. We need um, people of different um, upbringings, people of different socioeconomic classes. I just said, we need this can we have it? And later that day, somebody who I had been co-working with for a very long time, never mentioned church, they had never talked to me about it, emailed me and said, hey, I'd love to meet uh, next week and talk about your church and its people. And so it's just a really cool thing. I mean, it's not like this revelation, right? But it's this really cool way of reminding ourselves that God does answer even the little things that we ask for. And it's a cool win uh, to remind ourselves that God is not distant. He is not far off. And it was the most random thing that I got that email. We had not even talked in a very, very long time to get it the day that I prayed. Um, it was just a really cool answer of prayer. So that's a mini story. And uh, I'd love to hear many more of those from you guys as we continue, because we will run out of people giving their testimonies. And so I'm, I'm excited to keep doing that with you guys. Today, we're, we're finishing. Sadly, it's been a long journey, long summer, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we've been hitting it for several, several weeks and uh, this is Jesus' biggest teaching we see in, in really all of the Bible. It's this biggest chunk that he gives us. And if you were just to read chapters 5 through 7 in Matthew, you'd be able to get a pretty good depiction of, of what it means to be in his kingdom and the kingdom values, the kingdom ethics, all this type of stuff. And so we're closing that. We've kind of already actually learned all the content. And so we've already, he's taught us everything we need to know about the kingdom. And now he's closing with this kind of intense call to action um, you know, this kingdom that he's designed that will not fit in our kingdom. We must leave our own and join his. Uh, he's calling us to action and letting us know kind of two things uh, in this. The first one is what it requires to be in or out of this kingdom. What does that look like? The second one is what happens if you're in the kingdom or out of the kingdom. 
And when we talk about Matthew, we're going through the whole book, we're going to see this kingdom narrative, the entire book. But he, he's calling these listeners, uh, he's talking in this, in this setting, in these hills, to these, these close disciples of his. Now the 12 aren't really formed yet, and so it's just these disciples who decide to follow him in his teachings. But there's hundreds of people that are listening, and he gives them this call to action and be like, here's the kingdom uh, that I think you all want and desire. Are you willing to, to place your life into that, to follow it? And so today we're going to cover a lot of ground, like Jerry said, but there, there's, there's a, it's kind of a, a, it builds upon each other and creates this deeper and deeper narrative of, of the weight of following Jesus and, and joining his kingdom. And so there's four stories we're going to talk about. Um, as, we, as we talk about those, you'll start to kind of get another piece of the depth of what he's calling us to. So the first one, we'll just jump right in, is the story about two gates or even two paths, depending on what translation you read. Verse 13, it says, Enter through the narrow gate because the gate is wide and the way is spacious that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. Now, this is interesting because there's a common understanding that in the reading that you have two roads. And I, I, whenever we first started our church plan, this is one of the first things we talked about. In fact, we use it, we use more of like a river analogy. I'm a fly fisherman, so rivers just made more sense to me. Um, but for this sake, you can think of it as a road. But we have this giant road, right? And we have... Uh, we broke it into four different kind of categories. I'm going to simplify it for us today, but basically you had non-Christians, so whether it was, um, you know, like agnostic, atheist, um, were like uh, sojourn, or kind of like, I don't know, I'm kind of just spiritual. And then you have Christians, or we would call those, and when we talked about it, convictional Christians, meaning those who truly are trying to live out the way of Jesus. They don't just go to church on Sunday, but they really are trying to live a life that they believe is honoring to Jesus and, and so what happens, though, is it used to be that the mainstream of the river or the road was Christians, that, you know, they would take up most of the stream, and you're almost weird if you weren't a Christian, or you wouldn't identify as a Christian. And now the tides have switched to where that's kind of not the case anymore. In fact, the majority of people are not Christians, which means that the general culture, if you just let it throw you left and right in the current, if you don't have any intentional um, intentional opportunities or, or, or convictions or um, even values, you will be swept away in the cultural current, and before you know it, you'll be living a non-Christian lifestyle. And that wasn't the case before. You could just kind of drift as a Christian, and everybody was in a similar lane. That's not the case anymore. And so these two roads is very similar to what we had talked about when we first started, was the road of the culture is wide, and most people are traveling it, right? It's this pretty wide road that most people probably don't even realize they're on. In fact, one of the things that's interesting about this version, and if you read other versions in your Bible, you'll realize that sometimes it talks about the gate, sometimes it doesn't. It's just two paths. But this one specifically has a gate, which makes you realize that the path that has this little kind of, you know, um, offshoot here, not only is it a small path, it's not on the main one and it's narrow, but it also has a gate, which I feel like makes it even, like, even less compelling to try to be like, let's go over there, right? You have to have the intentionality to be able to go over to the gate, to unlock it, or to walk through it. So what Jesus is doing here is, is one, I think, he's letting us know that if you do absolutely nothing in your life, you will, just, you will just end up walking with everyone else. With no intentionality, you will be just like careless and carefree like most of the world. And it doesn't, it, it just, you'll think you're fine because the majority of people, he says, will take that road. In fact, in verse 14, he says, how narrow is the gate? He's not, he's not saying, how easy and wide is the gate that everybody will choose? He's saying, no, this gate's narrow, which means that most of them will not find it. He says, there are very few who find it. 
So he's not trying to like let us know that that this is easy and it's obvious and most people are going to take this segue and think it's worth it, that it's actually very rare. And he's, I think he's doing that because he knows the weight of even Christians for the first few hundred years were incredibly persecuted. They were the minority. Uh, and now that's actually a lot different in the world perspective. But we're just extremely minority. And so he gives us this gate. And so what I think he wants us to know here in this first story is that we, we have to be able to recognize where we're at, which means you recognize, wow, I'm just like going with the flow like everyone else. People are choosing their idols. They're making idols of their lives and and it's not going to get them anywhere. And you have to be willing to see something greater or better. You have to be willing to make the effort to cross like the stream, right? And walk over to this narrow gate. And he even says, like I said in verse 14, he says the gate is narrow and and, and and difficult the way that leads to life. So he's not even like saying, like he's almost kind of like, this is, this is tough. This is no joke. In fact, one commentator put it this. He says, when following Jesus, you make the decisive break by going through the gate of disciple commitment. And he says, you undertake the hard uphill struggle of the road to heaven. And I love that analogy because it almost makes you realize like you can maybe see what's ahead of you. Like you, you place your hope in Jesus and you know the reality of what that is. But it's uphill, right? It means it will be hard. There will be persecution. There will be things in your life that you will not get to do because of of what you believe. Now, that doesn't mean that's terrible or the end of the world, but it's just we have to acknowledge the weight of it. If your life is just like everybody else's, you're probably not on that road because you're not not going uphill and you're not making hard decisions. And and in this way, as he's taught this to all these people and they're listening and he has this compelling kingdom, the only way that his kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, comes on earth and that we can, we can help be a part of that is sacrifice on our own end because that kingdom is not the natural kingdom of the world right now. It's almost like if you want to live your own, you build your own kingdom the way you want it, it's selfish, it's pride-driven, it's money-driven, whatever, and you're like, I'm just going to live that in Jesus' kingdom. It doesn't work. It would actually ruin the kingdom that Jesus is trying to create that we all want. So we have to be willing to acknowledge and take this decisive action. So I'm kind of breaking these four stories into four big ideas that will kind of build on each other. But the first one is just simple. The narrow gate is unpopular, which we have to realize, because it requires intentionality and it will be difficult compared to the natural flow of the world. We have to be willing to acknowledge the flow of the world in order to get out of it. So that's the first one. He starts off with two gates. And then he gets into a one that seems a little bit more confusing in story two. This is verse 15. He says, watch out for false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are voracious wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. Grapes are not gathered from thorns or figs, from thistles, are they? I don't know if any of you guys are expert grape uh, or fig experts, but um, that would not make sense. In the same way, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree is not able to bear bad fruit, nor a bad tree to bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will recognize them by their fruit. Now, when we read this, a lot of times we think like, oh, it's false prophets. It's like this very small section of people who consider themselves prophets, who are like steering people away on television or whatever, right? We have like a very narrow lane for these type of people, but it's a lot wider than you might think. You think about the people, Jesus hasn't even hasn't even died on the cross yet. He's giving this teaching. So he's aware and he knows that there will be people who will take these perversions away from the true gospel of, of Jesus. And these people are not always those outside the church saying, like, that's terrible, I hate that. It can be like someone in uh, the book of Acts, I believe it's Simon the Magician, 
Um, it's not in my notes, but in the book of Acts where he basically wants the things of Jesus so that he can still just do his own way, right? And Peter's, and Peter's like, that's not how it works. There's people like this who will genuinely be in a church, will be follow, maybe even they'll claim to be followers of Jesus that can still lure people outside of the gospel. And we've seen this time and time again. In fact, some of the most dangerous people are those who they say preach the half-truth. They say the half-truth is not a half-truth, it's no truth. And in the same way, we have to realize that false prophets is not like this person you can just identify and be like, he was not good, like, I don't trust him. But it's, it's sneakier than that. They dress themselves up in sheep's clothing. They want to appear like other sheep. That, it, it makes sense, right? They don't just come in as a wolf and be like, that's a wolf. That's, not, that's no good. And so there's this discernment that comes into play here. And then he starts to talk about fruit, which is just a, a classic Christian, you know, like, it's such Christianese. Like, are you bearing fruit this week? You know, like, no one, no one talks like that. But you're like, yeah, I'm just seeing a lot of fruit, you know come to fruition. Like, who uses that word? But here, this idea of fruit is like a common, like, analogy in a Christian walk. And he says, basically, there will be fruit bore. That's what we forget. Regardless, there will be good and bad fruit that will be bore, no matter what. It's not like, like, he's not saying the, the voracious wolves will have no fruit. In fact, they will have fruit. The question is, what is good and what is bad fruit? And that, that, that actually is one reason why our core, our core groups are so consumed in reading the word is because if you have no idea what it says, you're going to have no idea what good and bad fruit is, and you're going to have no idea what you're doing and where you're, who you're following. In fact, I would love, like, pastors sometimes complain about, like, getting Monday emails, right? Like, oh, someone complained about my teaching or whatever. And, like, if you know the Bible better than me in a certain area, let me know. Like, great. Like, I don't want to be, I don't want to be a wolf in sheep's clothing, Right? Now, the only way I would do that is if none of you knew your Bible, and I could just tell you whatever made you feel good, and you walked away feeling good, right? If you know your Bible, it's going to help all of us. And so that's why we do it in core. And I was, I was reading this, this passage, and I started to ask myself, you know, like, what is good fruit? What is bad fruit? I started to ask myself, is being wealthy a good fruit? Is it a bad fruit? Does the Bible say anything about it? Is being kind a good fruit? Is that a fruit of following Jesus? Is setting boundaries with toxic people a fruit of following Jesus? Maybe you need to set the boundary. Maybe you don't. I don't know. Is rebelling against political uh, authority with whom you don't trust, is that, is that a good fruit of following Jesus or a bad fruit? Is, is um, you know, loving the homeless person and giving them money, is that good fruit? Or is it bad fruit if you feel like, oh, I should give it to a homeless shelter? Right? We have all these, every day we have these questions, what is good and what is bad fruit? And it came to the point where I realized, and I wrote it down, I underlined it because I wanted to read it right, is that most times our determination of what is good and what is bad fruit isn't founded in Jesus and his teaching. It's founded on our culture and our feelings. Most times the way we diagnose good and bad fruit has nothing to do with Jesus and his teachings. It has everything to do with culture and feelings. And this is why we talked about the road. What's the main road? Culture. And if you're just stuck in here, you're going, to sub, you're going to be subdued by the cultural opinion and even more the feelings. And I'm not saying feelings are bad. I'm not saying culture is bad. I'm just, for this example, a lot of times we, we evaluate what's good or bad based on other churches, based on other people, based on the world at large, like all these different factors, and we do nothing to look into the Bible and what, what, what Jesus is saying. And this is why the Sermon on the Mount is such a big deal. If we could just even live out these three chapters in our life, it would change the world. But oftentimes, we don't even know what's in them. We've uh, maybe even forgotten what was in them a few weeks ago. It reminds me of this uh, movie I watched. It's called Into the Wild. I don't know. Anybody raise your hand. Have you heard of that movie? Have you seen it? Okay. It's kind of like a, 
in indie-ish film, I guess, but it's about this, it's about, based on a true story, not fully true in this movie, but uh, it's dramatized, but it's about this boy who leaves everything, goes out into the wild, and like lives in the wilderness. Um, and he dies, I'm giving it away, sorry. I mean, this happened in real life, though, he did die as well, so I'm not like really giving it away. But uh, what happens, though, in the movie, which is not completely accurate to how he actually died, but in the movie, he was like a pretty good expert. Like he learned how to live out in the wild. He would shoot animals, he'd forage bushes and things like that. In the movie, what had happened was in his guidebook, he thought that there was a certain thing that he could eat. And he ate tons of it and tons of it because he couldn't find a deer and he just couldn't get enough meat in time or whatever. So he was just like, I got to eat something. He ate a bunch of this. All of a sudden, he starts to feel terrible, right? He starts to like shake and he kind of gets, he feels paralysis in his legs. And he opens up the guidebook and he realized what he had eaten, he thought was one thing, it was actually another thing. And he realizes and he finds out the thing that he ate actually, and it ends up killing him. It paralyzes him and he kind of starves to death. Uh, and it's, it's a very like morbid story, but the symbolism of that is so deeply rich in our lives is, you know, we might even be consuming bad fruit that we think is good fruit, and we have absolutely no idea until it's too late. And I'm not saying that it will lead to like physical death, right? But there's a lot of things in our lives that could really be bad for us, could be killing us, could be sin, and we're not even willing to acknowledge it because we have no idea because we're not willing to really listen to Jesus' teachings and understand what his kingdom looks like so we know what other kingdoms are, are wrong. And in that story, I mean, he thought he knew what he was eating. He was well-educated, and even then he still made a mistake. It looked so similar. And I think about, like, um, I, don't, I don't have, like, a plethora of false teachers that I just want to, like, throw out there, but I think about people who have been deceived by false teachers, the reality of these type of things. Most of the time, their fruit looks pretty good from most angles, right? It's only, like, when you go to a store, you pick up this beautiful apple, and you pick it up, and then you put it in your cart, and I was in the line a couple days ago, and I turned around, it was a cantaloupe, I turned around, and like the half of it was like rotten. And I was like, oh, you got to be kidding me. I didn't like turn it around. I didn't look at all the angles. And most of these people that have these huge problems, false teachers, whatever you want to call them, right, they don't have people in their life who are looking at all angles, right? You only see them up here. Even then, you're only getting, you know, 180 degrees of me, right? <laughs> and you're not getting to see at all angles. And so you're missing things that could be indicative of their, their heart and, and their teaching, and that's reflected in their lifestyle. A lot of times, you like, a lot of you have hung out with me. You play basketball with me. You know what I'm like. And sometimes, though, you don't, get to, you don't get to be around that person and really see what they're like and be able to understand um, who they are and, and they're, they're bad and they're good. So in this passage, it's, it's just summarized in verse 20. The end of it is, you'll recognize them by their fruit. And so this, this simple idea here from this, this second story and this kind of warning is, followers of Jesus are recognized by their fruit. They really are. And it's, uh, I want to be careful when I say this because that is not a determination of whether or not you believe in Jesus. But in this instance, it becomes clear that those who follow Jesus and live out of his love will, will attain to the fruits that he calls us to and the work that he does. And so if you get kind of nervous about that because you're like, wait, works don't save us. Jesus does. Jesus gives you a third story, which is where we go into the third story. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven he says, on that day, that many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many powerful deeds in your name? Then I will declare to them, this is like the most power, just gut punch phrase, I never knew you. Go away from me, you lawbreakers. Now, this passage, long story short, is, is a classic example of, of worshipers, people, worshiping the creation over the creator, Right? 
We take God's stuff and we just consume ourselves in it. We think that's what values us, the world, our purpose. And we miss the whole point of the creation was for the creator, to edify and glorify the creator. In this instance, though, what's terrifying about it is not only is it contingent on if Jesus knew you, but if he doesn't, what are you? Lawbreakers, get away from me. It's not like, ah, sorry, you missed it. You can still chill right here, though. It's like, get out of here. And, and that, to me, I'm like, oh, gosh. Like, I do not want to be on that side. I don't know about you. But you read it, and, and, and you're, like, so confused because you're like, wait a second. They did prophecy. They cast out demons. They did powerful deeds in the name of Jesus. And what is Jesus' barometer for, for his kingdom here? It's relationship. He doesn't say, you never knew me. He says, I never knew you. This is why, this is like a shameless plug for our mission statement, if you don't always remember it. One of our first pieces of our mission statement is help people be with Jesus. Relationship. Because we believe that though we cannot do that for you, we can help in the best way we can. We know that we're better together and that we're stronger together and Jesus and Paul and many others agree with that in the Bible. But at the end of the day, I mean, we can't, like, I, 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 can't, I, could, I could even maybe try to make you go to church and you could still miss this. Right, you could come here, like you could just substitute these things. If you're not a big prophetic person, or maybe you don't, you know, cast out demons in your spare time, maybe you're like, "Hey, I played the drums. I make a really good latte. Most people like my latte art. Like, I help with kids, even. You know, that's super spiritual, because kids are crazy. You know, <laughs> and you go up to Jesus, and He's like, "I never knew you." Can you imagine the weight of that? I mean, I think we're, a lot of us can be guilty of living this, this lifestyle in certain days, weeks, of our, seasons of our life where we're slaves to the things of God and we're not realizing that we're a son of God. I think about it, it's as silly as saying, and this is an Ohio State reference, you're welcome. Uh, it's as silly as thinking that just because you wear the jersey that you were actually on the roster of the Ohio State football team, Right? You're like, I sat in my house. No, you probably didn't sit in your house. You were at the game because you're dedicated, right? You had good tickets, tailgated, all that good stuff, right? You wore the jersey. You're not on the roster. You're all around it all. You're in the mix of it all. Everyone around you is probably also wearing a jersey and shouting and knows all the chants, right? And all that good stuff. Maybe you're even in the band, Glenn. It's pretty cool. <laughs> but, uh, but you're not on the roster, and you can act like you are. And from the outside, people might be like, well, they could probably tell that person doesn't play college football. But, whoa, so-and-so, they're on the college football team. But you're not on it. And it's in the same way. We can do all these type of things. You can even impress me. You could be like this super servant who signs up for like 10 teams. And I'm like, wow, look at this person. And you're like, Trey thinks I'm great. It doesn't matter. It just doesn't. I don't get, I'm not the head coach. If anything, I'm like the water boy. Maybe. And... We, we forget this, that, that the things that we do is not what allows us into the kingdom or not. The beginning of the Sermon on the Mount is all about Jesus establishing who is in the kingdom and has nothing to do with what people do. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the poor in spirit. All these type of things. It's not blessed are those who have a million dollars, they get into the kingdom. Blessed are those who have a really cool job. I, I have this quote. It's really long. Lucas gets mad at me when I put long quotes on the screen, but I'm sorry. I had to do it. It was just so good. This uh, scholar, R.T. Francis, uh, he, says, he says it like this. He just sums it up so well. He says, It seems that a new dimension is now added to the question of what fruit is. 
Even good works by themselves are not enough. Prophecy, exorcism, or miracles can hardly be described as bad fruit. No one would say they're bad fruit. But even these spiritual activities can apparently be carried out by those who still lack the relationship with Jesus, which is the essential basis for belonging to the kingdom of heaven. There are good people who claim to follow Jesus as Lord and who do good works and think they're doing them in Jesus' name who are nonetheless on the broad road. Doing the will of my Father in heaven is not merely an ethical category that will include also, that includes to know and be known by Jesus. A professed allegiance to Jesus falls short of that, and so does the enthusiastic performance of charismatic activities in his name. And so this is what it's all about. It's not meant to scare you, even though it does. And we listen to the people at the response at the end of this is they're just like, oh my gosh, what a man. He has authority that he's saying these things. But it's to ask yourself, in what way am I believing? One, that I'm saved. Two, that I'm actually a part of and participating in the kingdom. I mean, it it should be a gut punch. I can't imagine that I could read this, and it it always is for me. What a way to leave it, right? But am I in a relationship in which I'm being known by Jesus? Am I being honest with Jesus? Am I spending time with Jesus? And some of you might have, like, practical questions. You're like, what does that actually mean, Trey? And that's why I'm available all throughout the week. We can talk about that. But am I actually being known by Jesus? So the third one here, third story, is if we're not in a relationship with Jesus, all the deeds and words are meaningless to him. And I would say actually offensive if he calls us lawbreakers. The last story, which kind of closes everything here, it comes to a full culmination. He talks about structures and building. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not uh, and, and do, sorry, and does them is like a wise man who had built his house on a rock. The rain fell, the flood came, and the winds beat up against the house, but it did not collapse because its foundation had been laid on rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell, the flood came, and the winds beat against the house, and it collapsed. It was utterly destroyed. This is his provocative ask. Are you going to hear the words that I've said, and are you going to do them? Everything that I've laid out, I've given to you, and everyone here is listening. Are you actually going to hear my words? And I know the whole hearing thing, like, well, they did physically hear them. Are they going to let them, like, internalize in their life and their soul? And are we going to do them? Are we going to live as kingdom people that requires and forces us to have to leave our own kingdom? And I, I think this is such an interesting ending, like this, this analogy of a house on sand. Most people had known what this was. I mean, I haven't been to the Middle East. I've seen a lot of photos. I understand the geography of it. It's a lot of sand, a lot of desert. Um, there is a lot of areas that are not like that, but a lot of people were building houses out of sand, out of mud at this time, and they were very aware of the fact that you could take a risk on building on sand and, and, and it would be end badly. No one was like, oh, I don't know about that. But the only difference is here is is that when he does this, both houses, like he's talking about this and he uses these two illustrations, both houses appear to be fine when they're built. We forget that, right? I mean, it's, heck, there was uh, a, a um, you know, really terrible um, building that collapsed a few weeks ago in Florida, I think it was, right? Devastating. I mean, when we're just like, everybody that has a condo on the beach is like, I don't know about this anymore. And, but they had no idea. And some people say they knew or whatever, and they, had, they were trying to fix it and all that. But no one on the outside would ever know that building was going to fall over because it looked fine on the outside. Or it looked okay, right? You couldn't tell the structure. And in the same way, I think as he leaves 
his teaching here, he wants us to know, here's the way in the kingdom, a relationship with me, but he also wants you to know that there's these people who are going to leave and say no, right? There, there will be. In fact, I, I think we forget that Jesus' words were compelling, they were amazing, they were profound. People walked away from him. We'll read several weeks where people join him and people leave him. The call becomes too great, they are too selfish, whatever it is, they leave him. He knows people will leave this, not following him anymore, right? And what he's doing here, and what I think I, I want to do the same of is, and I think our world needs, is everybody here has a structure, and some of them just haven't had a storm yet. Like the, the kingdom, the house that you're building looks pretty great. And you think it's great. And everyone else thinks it's great. And it looks great. But at the end of the day, it's, it's going to collapse. Whether it's tomorrow, whether it's when you die, whether it's in 10 years. And this is the thing that he wants everyone to have on top of their head when they leave. Whether or not I say yes to the kingdom, I have to know that eventually my house is going to end in collapse. It will be utterly destroyed. And so he's giving us this kind of, the fancy theological word is eschatological um, reality, the things to come, the end, right? He's giving us this idea that at the end of the day, there's only one house that will stand, and it's the house that's built on Jesus. And the other houses will stand for a while. They will. Maybe there won't be any storms in your life. Maybe there haven't been any big enough ones. But they're coming. And so this fourth and final one is if we don't trust in Jesus, our lives will inevitably collapse. I don't know the time. You probably don't even know the time. But they will. And these four warnings, and they're, they're called warnings by most scholars. And a warning is not something that should make you feel good. Now, hopefully it doesn't make you panic. I'm not here to make you feel guilty or anything like that. But they're warnings. They're, will, they're, they're a warning in a way that we have to acknowledge where we're at and, and look ahead to the future. And so are we, are we taking the narrow gate? Are we, are we walking and taking the intentional step to get out of the cultural flow, to acknowledge the, the weight of what that means and the difference of that? Are we, um, even more in the second one, are we able to diagnose fruit, good fruit, bad fruit? Are we someone who really believes that Jesus knows us deeply? And at the end of the day, where is our foundation? And so as we close with that, I want to invite the band up. We do this um, every Sunday. We offer a time for what we call communion or the Lord's Supper, which is a part of uh, the, the last day that before Jesus was betrayed, the night that Jesus was betrayed. And in this, we do this because it, it places us all in the same wavelength of being sinners who need Jesus, who, who have houses that will crumble. And there's something beautiful about us all acknowledging that together. And so we're, we have time for you to do that. We have about a minute or so. We're going to play some music, um, and then we'll close in one last song. But we have uh, bread and cup in the back. If you want to grab that, you can take that if you believe that to be true. And uh, we're going to close in one more song. We also have people in the back who would love to pray for you. If you're, like, terrified of any of those warnings, give it to Jesus, right? If you're anxious, you don't have to be anxious about anything, but in all prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, cast your worries upon God, and he will give you the peace. And so we encourage you, if you would like prayer as well, um, we're going to have about a minute, and then we'll close in one last song. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.